The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. This is Inside Sports. Tashi Mamla, the first South African to get 300 in a test match. Your country salutes you. Inside the News. It's a really good ball. It's Inside the updates. See Khaleesi and South Africa. Just gone at five past eight. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Well, welcome to Inside Sport, exclusive to the Voice of the Cape, where we cover all the latest news and chat to past and present sports stars as well. I'm your host, Firo Sheikh, and pushing all the right buttons for me tonight is Nasser Maiberg. Shukran there, Nasser. I've got two guests tonight. We chat to former Cape Tonian and now a cricket South Africa umpire, Alahuddin Paleka. And then later on, we chat to the president of Karate South Africa, Sunny Pele about the COVID-19 regulations and karate in general as well. You can join the conversation. Our WhatsApp number is 072-238-0712 or call 021-442-3530. Before we get into uh, our conversation with our first guest, let's just catch up with the latest news coming through and what a dramatic day it was in the Premier League uh, today. Uh, Both sides of the table, uh, race for Champions League and uh, the uh, race to avoid relegation there. We just run through those scores very quickly for you Arsenal 3-2 winners over Watford Burnley they went down 2-1 to Brighton Chelsea beat Wolves 2-0 Tottenham Hotspur and Crystal Palace played to a 1-0 draw Bournemouth uh, beat Everton uh, 3-1 Manchester United uh, beat Leicester 2-0 Man City 5-0 winners against Norwich City Liverpool 3-1 winners against Newcastle Southampton beat Sheffield United uh, 3-1 and West Ham and Aston Villa they drew 1-0 we'll take a look at those tables later on in the show uh, in cricketing news coming through from that third and final Test at Old Trafford where England are playing the West Indies. Day three there, England declared their second innings on 226 for two, leading by 369, uh, 398 runs there. I beg your pardon. They made 226 for two uh, declared and 369. West Indies bowled out for 197 in the first innings. They'll have to do, do better there if uh, they want to uh, save the series. So joining me on the line now, all the way from Pretoria, is uh, the former Cape Tonian, Alahuddin Paleka. Assalamu alaikum, uh, and thanks for chatting to us on the Voice of the Cape. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah to all the listeners. It's a pleasure. Uh, now, before we chat about your uh, career, there is something very interesting I picked up while uh, researching and Googling you, uh, while I was doing my uh, research and planning. On Wikipedia, Laudin, uh, they describe you as uh, um, a South African umpire and former cricketer of Maharashtrian descent with the roots tracing back to Ratnagiri district of Maharashtra. Did you know that, by the way? Uh, yes, I knew, yes, I knew that. <laughs> um, you know, my grandparents are from India, moved to South Africa, and then, you know, uh, that's where the Indian roots come. Mm. And uh, when I went to India in 2015 on exchange, uh, you know, I did an interview there with uh, NDTV, and they also, you know, were quite curious to find out about my Indian roots because they thought I was one of the players, uh. not knowing that I'm a South African, that they on exchange. So they find, found it quite uh, amazing that uh, there's an Indian South African that's in the umpiring fraternity. <laughs> obviously, they know about Hashim Amla and mm. uh, Imran Tahir. He's obviously Pakistan original, mm. uh, but there's not many um, Indians playing 
at the highest level. So they found that quite uh, amazing. And then they did some research and then they, you know, put that as my uh, biography on uh, Wikipedia. Did you trace your roots, by the way? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, in 2000, I went to India. Uh, we went for a, I went with my dad and aunt for a family wedding. So that was my first time that I've been to India and, you know, met all the family there. Uh, and, you know, since then we've been in touch. So when I went in 2015, it was, uh, you know, I was looking forward to the trip because I've been to India, experienced a bit of it, played a bit of... Uh, on my trip there in 2000, uh, I was there for about five weeks and uh, I played a bit of cricket while I was there, you know, the inter-village uh, competition. Yes. So uh, I was quite looking forward to the trip second time round, this time as a match official. Fantastic. Now, uh, you were uh, grew up in uh, Cape Town, of course. Just tell us where about in Cape Town you grew up. And was cricket uh, your preferred sport? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a small little town called Cravenby Estate, which is in the northern suburbs in Cape Town. And uh, football or soccer was actually my first uh, first love. Um, I... I played for Thornhill United, who is part of the, I don't know if it still exists, the Rygate uh, Football Association. We used to play in Johnson Road. So, uh, yeah, so soccer was uh, my first love. Uh, my uncle, who worked at the University of Western Cape, but stayed in Ryland, he picked me up every Friday afternoon, and I spent the weekend at my granny's place in Johnson Road. That was the hub for Thornhill United, all my uncles were involved there, all the kids were stored there at my granny's place, so you know, it was just a natural way to be you know, fall in love with sports so soccer was the first, my first love and soccer being a winter sport um, I, I remember quite clearly, uh, I was six years old playing under 10 and the soccer kits uh, that they gave us was too big for me, so I played with a, with a big pin just to keep my trousers from not falling down, so those were quite Memorable, memorable days, and um, I developed some sinus, and uh, you know, the playing football in winter on the wet grass didn't quite agree with me, and uh, I had to stop playing soccer at the age of 11, and that's when I started playing cricket, and uh, then the rest is just fell into place over the years. And uh, I believe you you were a wicket keeper when you played first class cricket. Did uh, you always? Uh, uh, prefer keeping wickets because no kids of of today it's either bat or bowl, so not many of them want to take those wicket keepers' gloves. So what made you take up a wicket keeping? I was actually I'm actually mainly a played as a batsman who bowled a bit of spin, and what happened was um, I played a bit of action cricket in Cape Town as well, and uh, I wasn't the most athletic and sharpest of fielders, and I was a bit scared to field in front because I mean that game is quite quick, and if you're fielding mm-hmm. close by, you know the risk of injury or getting hit was quite high, and uh, I started uh, becoming a keeper at the action cricket because I thought that was the easiest place to stand. You just stand at the back. Most of the time, the guys hit the ball, so you don't have to catch too many balls. And so I had a bit of that background, and uh, when I was playing for uh, for Northerns in one of the games, um, the keeper... The coach just came to me one night before one of the games and just said to me, we, we played, I remember we were playing in Durban and the coach at the time was Dave Nosworthy and he just called me to his room that evening and said, uh, tomorrow we want to play you as a keeper because of the balance of the team so that the keeper was in the team originally. They could replace him with an extra 
better or bowl. I couldn't remember exactly what it was. But just for the balance of the team, he said, you have kept in, at action cricket level and, you know, you're keeping. And then my last two seasons, uh, I started keeping wicket for Northerns and... Uh, um, then A.B. de Villiers came along and then he took over and the rest is history. <laughs> you mentioned Northerns. Of course, you played for Western Province as well, first-class analyst. Eh? Uh, talk us through some of the highlights of your playing days. Yeah, I grew up in Cape Town, you know, and obviously I had the dream of playing for Western Province. Uh, I, I, got, I went to Cravenby Secondary School. Uh, I went there from sub eight till matric, so one school my whole career. Um, and in those days, we were part of uh, Indian Affairs. So there was only three schools in Cape Town which we, which we played against or which were involved in sports. Um, it was Cravenby, Ryland's High, and Pelican Park. So we only played against those schools. So you probably had two cricket matches for the whole year, or maybe you played <laughs> home and away four games for the whole year. And uh, then I joined Cravenby Cricket Club. I lived right across the ground, so that was very convenient. And uh, again, they played in the lower divisions. I believe they're doing quite well now. They in the one C or one D, if I'm not mistaken, they gained promotion in this uh, last season. And I played for Craven the Cricket Club. And uh, as a, I think as a 16 year old, I played first team. And then from there on, I, uh, I finished matric, and then I got a bursary to study at UWC. So I ended up playing at UWC, and that's where I got my break. Um, I played for the university of in the university's week, and I made the South African university's team. And then from there, I gained selection to the Western Province B team, which played in the bowl competition. And I played in the I played only for one season, and then the second season, uh, I was in the squad, but I didn't play any games. And uh, that's when I got an opportunity at Northerns, where they offered me a contract to move up here. And that was way back in 1999. So. 21 years later, and I'm still up north. Mm, that's quite interesting, actually. Now, you're still young as an umpire at the, at the moment. What made you retire at such a young age? And did you go into your umpiring straight after retirement? Yeah, that was probably one of the best uh, bit of advice I got while playing. Uh, Marie Erasmus, who's our number one umpire in South Africa and on the elite panel, um, he was umpiring one of our games and, you know, I was fielding next to him and I had a chat to him and said, uh, uh, you know, I would like to become an umpire and, you know, how do I go about it and that kind of thing. And obviously my dad's an umpire, my uncle is an arson, is an umpire, and my father, who is no better known as JC, they they currently still umpire in Cape Town. Uh, my father umpires for Weinberg Boys High and my uncle umpires for Underbosch. So umpiring being in the blood and cricket being in the blood, I just felt that I was always going to, you know, uh, become an umpire when I stopped playing. And Maria Erasmus told me, don't make the mistake that he made because once he stopped playing first-class cricket, he carried on playing club cricket for another five to six years mm. and then decided to umpire. So he wasted five to six years of his umpiring career where he could have started umpiring a lot sooner. So that was a good advice that he gave me. So at the age of 28, when my contract ended at Northerns and they decided not to renew it, I just thought that the next step is, you know, start umpiring while you're young. And uh, the best decision I ever made and you didn't look back, of course, eh? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> no, it's been a, 
you know, it's been tough. Uh, you know, you had lots of ups and downs. It's quite difficult to get to the top level. At the moment, there's only 17 first-class umpires in South Africa. And at the moment, I'm ranked number four in South Africa. And, um, you know, lots of sacrifices along the way. Uh, they have quite a fantastic pipeline structure at Cricket South Africa for umpiring. You start off at club level, you go to tournaments, national weeks, and then you just progress through the ranks and get onto their panels. It's quite interesting you mentioned ranking. We'll, we'll chat about that later on. Um, you are a full-time umpire now, right, with Cricket South Africa. You're contracted, so your job is umpiring at the moment. Yes, that's correct, yeah. And then recently you've been included in the ICC International Panel of Umpires. Just touch a little bit of that on the ICC. There's different panels. Which panel are you on the, at the ICC? Yeah, um, if we start from the top, they have the elite panel where there's only 12 umpires. And those 12 are the only full-time umpires in the world that's contracted to the ICC. Then below that panel of 12, there's a reserve panel of eight and those guys, uh, so the 12 guys, they control all test matches and ODIs and some, and, and mostly the World Cups. Then the, the panel below that, there's eight on the reserve list. And some of those guys do test, some of them do ODIs and bilateral series. And then below that, there's a panel of about, uh, it's about 32 of us. So I'm on that level. Um, each country has four international umpires. So we mostly, between that uh, that panel of eight and a panel of 32, that's where we fall in. So um, you you mainly do uh, tours that's in your, your own country because you're not allowed to umpire test matches for your own country. That's all neutral appointments. Mm. However, with COVID now being around, a lot of that has changed. So as you see in the West Indies England series currently going on, there are um, two English umpires doing the test match. So it's the first time since 2002 that a home umpire is doing a test match. Yeah, so yeah, so those are basically the three uh, levels of the, of the ICC panels. And then below that, they have associate panels, which are basically your umpires from Namibia and Netherlands and um, uh, Papua New Guinea and, you know, the countries that play in the associate level. Yeah, so those are the, the four panels. Fantastic. Now, uh, of course, umpire is not just walking onto the field and, and standing on either end and, and uh, standing in either the day or three days or four days. There's a lot goes into it in terms of behind the scenes as well. Talk us through some of the behind the scenes uh, happenings as an umpire. Yeah, there's lots of things. You know, one of the most important things in an umpire is, uh, and I think in any sport, is uh, preparation. Um, we obviously have uh, the laws of the game that we need to know. Uh, with each different competition, there are playing conditions. So you currently have to keep up to speed with changes. For example, uh, last week we got an email with the new playing conditions for the ODI World League, which is starting on the 30th of uh, July, which is next week. Uh, Ireland is playing England. So those, you know, there's constant changes happening in the game. Uh, technology is there, so you've got to try and, uh, you know, keep up to date with that. Um, yeah, so preparation is there. Uh, fitness is also there because, like you mentioned, sometimes you umpire a four-day or five-day game. You're on your feet for seven hours a day in 35, 40 degrees in some places. So fitness is important. So we, we do... Uh, fitness evaluations every three months. Uh, it's not quite, you know, uh, hectic fitness that we have to do. Um, 
it's just basically you've got to be standing fit. So they do health checks, you know, we do hearing, eye tests and things like that. Uh, so those are the things that, you know, you, you need to... Um, Keep yourself up to date with that. In the past, umpiring was known as an old, old generation. Uh, you know, umpires, all old people retired, finished played. Uh, however, that's changed now. And if we just look at the latest appointment on the elite panel, is an Indian guy by the name of Nitin Menon. He's only 36 years old and he's on the ICC elite panel. So there is a change in that now, you know, and also they're looking for former players. So that also helps, you know, if, you, if you've played the game, it makes it easier for you to, to understand and, and, and uh, you know, you, you, you can anticipate things happening on the field. So there's a lot of behind the scenes that we've been doing, even now in this COVID times. Uh, twice a week we're having meetings where we have law discussions, uh, you know, we get a quiz question on a Monday and then you answer it and then we just, you know, just to refresh our memories and we have a discussion with other buyers from around the world. Yeah, so it's it's quite uh, intense when it comes to those, uh, you know, you, you're allowed to get a decision right because you're human, but uh, if you get a law wrong, a law, then that's a, that's a problem. So that's one of the most important things is just to keep up to date with the laws of the game and, you know, interpretations and, and, and that kind of thing. Alauddin, we'll just pause it there. We're going to take a quick ad break and when we come back, we'll continue with our uh, discussion. This is Inside Sports. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back. You're tuning to Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. We're talking to Alauddin Paleka, the Cricket South Africa and ICC Cricket Umpire. Now, uh, before we continue, Alauddin, I got a message here from Irfan Abrams. He says, Salam, what a gentleman of the game, amazing human being. MashaAllah, all the best for the rest of his career. Shukran. Um, so we were talking about that ranking system, which I found very interesting. You ranked number four in the country in terms of the umpires. How does that ranking system work? Yeah, so for every every game that we umpire, there is a match ref, uh, which is an independent uh, person. And usually it's uh, either a former player or a former umpire or somebody that's been involved with the game at a high level and understands the game. Uh, and they evaluate your performance. So they fill in a match report that counts 50%. And then each captain fills in a captain's report on the match. And each captain's report counts 25%. So after every match, captains fill in those reports. And then at the end of the season, uh, they take all those reports and put all that information in a program that they've got. And then that kicks out a, uh, a mark or percentage and uh, that's how you judged on that. Um, what uh, they've done here in Cricket South Africa is they've got a... Um, so the four of us, uh, which is the four international umpires, we ranked one, two, three, and four. So that ranking doesn't really change in Cricket South Africa. Um, it just stays there. So irrespective of how you perform during the season, the one to four stays like that. Then they have a batch after that of... Four, so, there, so there's batches of fours. So basically, one to four, we're all on the same level. Then five to eight, they treated on the same level. And then nine to 12 is on the same level. And so forth, till you get to number 17. So, uh, yeah, so because we're all nearly on the, you know, we equally good. And sometimes it's one decision here and there that can, you know, 
improve your mark or not, or you know. So it does, it's not a, a, a true reflection sometimes, because mm. sometimes you can have a fantastic game and you get one decision wrong, and the captains only remember that wrong decision. They forget <laughs> about the other 15 correct decisions. So you know, so they look at it overall, and there's other things that they look at: man management, communication, teamwork, uh, decision making. So those are the things that you get ranked on uh, after every match. So as it stands, uh, you're in position four, so you've qualified for the Champions League, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> Now, you've, you've done T20s and ODRs as well, and I see your debuts against uh, India and Pakistan. Uh, what was it like standing in uh, these games, knowing these are huge countries in terms of uh, cricket? Yeah, my, my, my debut game was at Centurion, uh, South Africa versus India in a T20. Um, you know, it was quite a, a big occasion for me because you probably had uh, the best T20 team in the world with the likes of Kohli, Dawan, Sharma, Dhoni, uh, Pumra, all of them playing in the same game. Um, but, you know, I just treated it as just another game and at the end of the day, you're umpiring the, the ball and it's not the player's name and you know you just try and treat everybody the same you try and treat Kohli the, exactly the same way like you treat a, treat a first class player and uh, you know I was just fortunate that I was still getting into the game the nerves were there and the very first ball from my end was Junior Dala bowling to Rohit Sharma and he got hit on the pad so I didn't have time to think or settle in the game and my very first ball in international cricket, I had to make a decision and I gave him out and it was the correct decision and we have the review system which he didn't challenge so I felt, I thought, I hope I got that one right because he didn't challenge me and fortunately it showed three reds, that means pitch in line, impact in line and wicket hitting. So that took uh, quite a lot of pressure off me for that first game because, you know, you, that first decision is always the nervous one. Once you get that out of the way, then the rest of it, you just calm and you settle. And I'm generally quite a calm person. Nothing really bothers me. Well, we've seen that on the screens while watching you umpiring. We've seen that. <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah, so that's one of the the things that you need to have. You need to have some hair on your teeth every now and then. Um, yeah, so uh, it just uh, the calmness helped me quite a bit on the field. Uh, that was the first game, and my ODI debut was against Pakistan in Port Elizabeth. Uh, I was quite fortunate on both these occasions. I had my dad in the grandstands watching, so uh, you know. Uh, I did feel a bit of pressure, but also a bit of comfort that I know he's there watching over me. And, you know, it was always his dream to become an international umpire. And now I'm just, you know, fulfilling his wishes and his dreams. Yeah, it must have been Uh, a brilliant moment that, hey? Yeah. Yeah, then the Pakistan game also was a bit of, uh, you know, pressure. But uh, funnily enough, uh, the nicest team to umpire an international from what I hear from the other umpires the nicest team to umpire at international level is New Zealand. Mm. And the second nicest team to umpire is Pakistan. So I was quite amazed because everybody talks about, you know, the Pakistani, about the, the history that they, yes. things that they were involved on, on field, off field and things like that. And uh, as we walked onto the field, Mohammed Afiz, uh, who was quite a senior player, he just walked across to me, took my hand and said, good luck and enjoy it. And I just thought, okay, this guy is, you know, he's giving me some confidence and, you know, just making it easier for me to... So so, so I was a bit nervous, but again, once you get that first decision right, uh, 
everything and shukar everything went well in that first ODI as well. Fantastic. Now, I'm very interested to find out, you know, we talk about sledging in cricket and it's huge. In terms of umpire, umpires and umpiring, do you guys ever get, for example, you gave that first decision you were talking about, which was spot on, you got three ticks there. If it went the other way, you would have most probably got a few words uh, thrown at you. Does it happen as an umpire? You know, did you ever get in that situation where one of the players, you know, were not, were not happy with your decision or something to that effect? Uh, at international level, it's, it's uh, with the DRS system now where players can review your decisions. Uh, it makes it a lot easier. It takes away all that animosity on the field because at the end of the day, the correct decision is made if they challenge a decision or if, or if you get it wrong and they don't challenge, then it's their, their loss. But, you know, they have that uh, opportunity to challenge. Uh, when we go down to non-televised games, that's where it becomes a, a bit more tougher because there's uh, there's nothing really to back up your decision. So you always find one team's happy with the decision and the other team's not happy with the decision. So if you give a batsman out, he's always not happy and the field team is always happy. So you always have that type of animosity between teams that you need to to sort out. One of the important things as an umpire is um, you basically, your match management, how you manage those situations is what uh, uh, gets you to the top. Um, and I've had quite a few instances at first-class level because it's non-televised and, you know, sometimes match situations, tempers flare and that kind of thing. Mm. So you just got to try and be controlled all the time, remain calm and try and be neutral. That's basically what you need to do. Don't take one person's side and, you know, you're like a, you just got to try and calm the situation and make sure that cricket's going on and there's no argy-bargies happening. Now, uh, let's talk about COVID-19. How has it affected you, the umpires in general? What have you guys been up to uh, since March? Yeah, it it was actually a welcome break for me. Um, Since December last year till March, I was only at home for about 10 days in those three and a a bit months. So, uh, you know, when the lockdown came, uh, I actually looked forward to that uh, couple of weeks, which turned into months, to just to be at home and spend some time with my wife. Because uh, it's quite a lot of uh, sacrifice being away from home, uh, especially when you have these international series. Uh, the England tour, there was four test matches. I was involved in the second, third and fourth test, which meant I was away from home for almost 25 days continuously. Um, so that was quite a nice break just to be at home and spend some time and just relax. Um, Cricketing-wise, uh, we did nothing for the first month and then from about May onwards we started having uh, uh, these discussions twice a week, just law discussions and things like that. Guys were staying fit. Uh, we were, you know, we were communicating with each other via social media or all these other platforms, Zoom, Teams and things like that. So we just tried to keep in touch with each other. Um, once a week, our, our manager used to just maybe just drop us a WhatsApp or a call or something like that just to find out if we were okay. Mm-hmm. Because for umpires now, you know, it's, it can be emotionally draining just sitting at home doing nothing. Uh, I did umpire that game last week, which was a once-off in that Solidarity Cup. And our next action from what we hear is probably going to be November. So the earliest that we're looking at is at franchise cricket will be in November. So, yes, so COVID has really, you know, uh, played its part in 
in uh, you know disturbing our normal routines but i think that's what's happened to everyone in the whole world so we're just going to try and find ways to you know to get by it now uh, just before uh, we leave you um Every cricketer's dream is to play test cricket. Now, you as an umpire, I'm sure that's your dream as well, to umpire in test matches. How do you get to that stage? Or what is the next process in terms of you getting to that stage? Yeah, definitely. Test match is the ultimate form of the game. You know, if you can... Uh, I've got many of my colleagues that have said, if I can only just do one test, I'll be happy. Just one test. Yeah. You know? So, yes, that is the ultimate I- form of the game. And Can uh, I just you know, say bye to this like, guy and do ads and we'll come back to him? You'd like to... Uh, am I still on? Yeah, you're still on. Carry on, Muff. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So you'll just, um, yeah, you want to try and get to the to the uh, to the pinnacle of uh, of you know, the cricket um, umpires to do a test match. Uh, like I mentioned, there's 12 elite umpires, and then below that, there's a panel of eight, and then I'm in the panel below that. So my first goal is just to get into that eight, because once you're in that panel of eight, uh, they do give you a test match opportunity. Maybe if it's a small uh, series, uh, Afghanistan playing. Uh, Maybe West Indies, for example, or Namibia or Zimbabwe play, playing um, Sri Lanka. So, you know, not a high-profile mm. series. So you do get test matches when you're at that uh, level. So my first goal is to break into that eight. Uh, this is now going my third season on the international panel. So opportunities has been a bit limited because, like I said, I'm number four on the list. So if there's three ODIs, then number one, two, and three will get those matches, and I'll be the one that misses out. So um, just got to be patient and wait for that opportunity. So the first goal is to get into that eight, and then from there just work hard and try and keep knocking on the door and wait for that opportunity because when the opportunity comes, I need to be ready. Fantastic, Alahuddin Palaika. It's been a pleasure chatting to you this evening and all the best to you in your career. Shukran, shukran for having me. It's a pleasure. That was Alahuddin Palaika chatting to us from Pretoria, the Cricket South Africa umpire, and on the ICC panel as well. We'll take a quick ad break and when we come back, we're talking karate with Sunny Pillay. This is. Just gone 20 to 9, it's time to introduce my second guest tonight. He is the President of Karate South Africa and is a member of the World Karate Federation Technical Board and All Africa Karate Federation. Joining us all the way from Durban, we say very good evening to Mr. Sunny Pillay. Good evening to you, Feroz. Always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I'm excited that you have migrated to the Western Cape and is now, and now uh, associated with Cape Radio. I didn't know that such a radio existed. Fantastic, Mr. Pillay. Well, uh, you know, Voice of the Cape is uh, quite huge here in the Western Cape, so uh, your message That's is true. going out to hundreds and thousands of people. Now, Mr. Pillay, before we chat about uh, karate and the COVID-19 regulations, give us a brief overview of your federation that you head up. Karate South Africa is still alive, well, kicking, uh, trying to get the sport on the road, as they say, uh, under very trying circumstances. Uh, However, there is a huge online activity going on. I would say 80, 90% of the karate masters, the teachers, are busy teaching, conducting classes online. So uh, the sport is very much alive. And uh, we, uh, we can't wait 
for the dust to settle in terms of this COVID-19 uh, virus uh, because everybody, you know, there's nothing like uh, live classes in a karate dojo or karate club. But at the same time, uh, we are very conscientized with regards to the government regulations in terms of the Gazette. And uh, therefore, uh, we are following as closely as possible the restrictions. Now, uh, Mr. Pillay, your membership in the Western Cape is quite huge as well, I believe. Karate in the Western Cape is very vibrant. Some of our top champions, the number one ranked athletes in South Africa come from the Western Cape. The Western Cape historically have produced karate champions of the first order. And uh, the uh, activity in uh, Western Cape in terms of karate has always been a buzz. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's very vibrant. Their top coaches are there. So uh, uh, the Western Cape uh, and karate is synonymous. Now, uh, let's talk about those COVID-19 regulations. Minister Nati Ntetwa recently announced the uh, easing of yeah. the contact sports, and karate, of course, is one of them. Now, as president of Karate South Africa, you have a message to uh, those uh, various clubs and members there to take it easy. Yeah, look, uh, we cannot leave anything to chance. And as a national federation, we applied for approximately 400 karate clubs from around the country to be given the green light to open their doors. Finally, with the easing of level three, the minister did come back to us and he did ease uh, the rules to allow for karate clubs or dojos as we know them to reopen. However, there is a string of compliance protocols that needs to be strictly adhered to. And I have been emphasizing very strongly through direct communication with the provinces and the dojo owners or the club owners through social media and direct communication via emails, daily, basically daily, weekly, monthly uh, uh, communicate coming from the World Karate Federation, also giving directives. But the minister is very clear. The fundamentals of the uh, compliance, combat COVID-19 compliance regulations uh, has to be followed. Uh, social distancing two meters apart for each athlete. In other words, the, the one athlete and the other athlete has to have a two meter uh, 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 area between both of them. The wearing of uh, face masks, uh, the, uh, the checking of their temperatures as they enter the karate club and uh, sanitization of the venue and we as KSA have also designed a compliance uh, test and examination of the fundamentals. So if anybody does the test that is online, free of charge, who belongs to Karate South Africa, a club a head or a, or a karate instructor who runs a club, if he does that test, uh, they say to, uh, they, 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 the possibilities are they become very au fait with the fundamentals. You'll be very surprised at the ignorance of the, of the man in the street in terms of some of the fundamentals. Hence, you see uh, lots of negligence in terms of following the compliance, the combat compliance COVID-19 regulations. And that's why the numbers seem to be going through the roof. At Karate South Africa, we are leaving nothing to chance. In fact, we are 
encouraging our karate clubs to remain closed until the, the end of August, the beginning of September, if they can help it, uh, simply because we feel that with the numbers spiking, the COVID cases, infection rates spiking at the moment in, the, in, the, in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal in particular, I think the Western Cape has had its turn. Uh, we just can't afford to take a chance, and uh, and we feel that instructors must continue teaching online until the dust settles in terms of this uh, pandemic uh, uh, virus. No. So it's all systems go. We, our systems are all in place uh, to combat the virus, but at the same time, we still feel that our instructors need a little more time. Mr. Pillay, what about the other clubs? I know there's various other clubs and associations uh, involved in the karate when they might not be part of Karate SA. So how difficult will it be to control this now with those other clubs as well? Well, look, uh, the minister and SASCOC recognizes Karate South Africa, KSA as we know it, as the official custodians of karate in this country. So we are encouraging all karate clubs to affiliate to KSA it's an encouragement and a recommendation so that they get the benefit of whatever Karate South Africa, the, the, the um, measures that we are putting in place to ensure the safety of athletes first from an infection point of view. Now, if they don't belong to Karate South Africa, we can't speak for them and we cannot represent them. Mm. So you need to belong. I mean, I, I would like to think the same with... Uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, be the case with SAFA or CSA or, or power boating or power lifting, et cetera, et cetera. So we can only govern our members. Sure. And that's where we are with that. But at the same time, our doors are wide open for people on the outside to walk in through our door and, and join and become members. Uh, I have to say that I am delighted to say that since this COVID-19 um, uh, issue broke out, uh, 120 new karate clubs have joined Karate South Africa. And that's, that uh, tells me that something is happening, and they've seen the light, that if they want to uh, get um, uh, the green light to open their doors, and they want to be uh, in a position where they are complying with compliance, they need to come through an, uh, an organization, and no better organization in karate than the National Federation KSA to be a part of to ensure that everything is firmly on track. Now, before we uh, say goodbye, I just want to touch a little bit on the Olympic Games. I know you were huge on driving for karate to be part of the Olympic Games, and it was included, or it would have been included for the very first time. Unfortunately, we know the Olympics has been uh, postponed. How disappointing is that for you especially, and of course the Global Karate Fraternity? Look, uh, for me, it's a devastation because it's the first time uh, it is a battle that uh, lasted for 50, 60 years to get karate into the Olympics. Finally, the IOC saw the light and included the sport for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Sadly, we all know now that Tokyo 2020 is not happening. They are talking, about, they have postponed it to 2021. But I am led to believe that even 2021 uh, could be challenging because of the fact that the, the pandemic, uh, you know, doesn't look like it's going anywhere fast and will be with us for some time to come. 
So uh, if it doesn't happen in 2021, then we are in serious trouble because 2024 uh, Paris Olympics, we are not sure whether karate will be included because remember it depends on the city and the local I, the local organizing committee of that particular city where it's being hosted. So it is a it is a, a great concern. It is extremely. Uh, disheartening, demoralizing for the athletes in particular. We had about eight athletes that were in line to qualify for the Olympics. They hadn't qualified, but they were in the running. But since the postponement of the 2020 Olympics, the whole game has changed in terms of qualification criteria. And so much so that it seems they're going to start all over again. And uh, we, are, we are receiving directives uh, very regularly from the World Karate Federation, the WKF, uh, to give us direction as to what is in store as the future unfolds. Fantastic. Uh, Mr. Pillay, I just got a message here from Suleiman David who says he's enjoying the discussion with you regarding karate. But we're going to have to leave it there, Mr. Pillay. Thanks for that. And uh, thanks. I'm so delighted that you made contact with me and that we could speak to our listeners in the, in the Western Cape area. Thank you, my dear friend. Keep in touch. There's so, karate is a very vibrant sport. There's always things happening, and I would like to cover the Western Cape through your radio and through your kind courtesy. God bless you. Good luck with what you're doing, and all the best in the Western Cape. Thank you, Mr. Pillay. That was uh, Sunny Pillay, the uh, president of Karate South Africa, chatting to us. We're going to take a quick ad break now, and when we come back, we'll wrap up uh, today's uh, latest scores. This is Inside Sports. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back. Trust you enjoyed those uh, d- uh, conversations with Allahuddin Paleka, Cricket South Africa umpire, and uh, Sunny Pillay, who is the president of Karate South Africa. Just before I go, let's just wrap up the latest scores coming through from England. Of course, the final score, should I say, on the final day, Arsenal beat Watford 3-2, Burnley beat, uh, well, Burnley lost to Brighton 2-1, Chelsea beat Wolves 2-0, Crystal Palace and Tottenham Hotspur drew one all, Bournemouth beat Everton 3-1, Man United 2-0 winners against Leicester City, Man City thrashed Norwich City 5-0 Newcastle going down 3-1 to Liverpool, Southampton beating Sheffield United 3-1 and West Ham and Aston Villa, they drew 1-0 so what does that all mean? The final four Champions League places have been confirmed, Liverpool of course are champions, winning the league for the first time since 1990 Manchester City finished as runners up Manchester United finished third so they join Liverpool City and uh, Chelsea finish fourth so uh, Chelsea and United will join Liverpool and City in the Champions League next season. Leicester finish fifth uh, so they'll go through to the Europa League as do uh, Tottenham Hotspur who finished a sixth there. The teams relegated Bournemouth, Watford and Norwich City go down to the Championship. We know Leeds and uh, West Bromwich Albion come up uh, next season. Of course the playoffs still to take place. Aston Villa well uh, they produce a great escape there. Aston Villa last few uh, good uh, results going their way. The result against West Ham today that draw was good enough to see them survive. They finished 17th there. So Bournemouth, Watford and Norwich will be playing in the Championship next season. Let's see what's happening in England at Old Trafford. England looking uh, a good day to uh, win the Series 2 one, they declared their second innings on uh, t- uh, 226 for two with a lead of uh, 398 there. They made 369 in their first knock. West Indies not very good in their first innings. 
They'll have to improve in their second innings. They were bowled out 497. Still two days to go there. England firm favourites to win that series 2-1. So that's it from me for tonight. I trust you had a, uh, enjoyed the show, Inside Sport. Uh, you can catch more tomorrow on the uh, drive time when I'll have all the latest uh, sporting news for you at half past five. From me, Firo Sheikh, and from my technician as well, Nasser Maiberg. Assalamu alaikum and have a brilliant evening.